You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, my name is Miriam Kelly. I'm the senior curator here at ACCA. And um, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to our panel discussion tonight. I'm really looking forward to hearing about insurgent interventions in public space through dance, augmented reality, and other forms of art. Um, tonight's event takes place in the Nagi Jambana. Uh, this is a gathering space that's been designed by Nawi Carolyn Briggs and Sarah Lynn Reese. And you are all, in fact, sitting on um, the, the materials of, of country. And this project has really been uh, inspired, uh, made, made, sorry, it's uh, encouraged to make us think about the, um, the country that we're on uh, and what it might look like if the materials of public space um, were reflective of the country that we're on. Acker, of course, in itself is not made from the materials of the country we're on. We're not made from bluestone. We're not made from the, the silt that sits below us. So this project by Sarah Lynn Reese and um, uh, Nawi Carolyn has really been a, a beautiful starting point for conversations about uh, whose country we are on when we're in public space. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we meet tonight on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I pay my respects uh, to the elders, uh, ancestors, past and present, uh, and to all the Kulin Nations whose materials um, are represented here in this installation, uh, and to all First Nations people who might be joining us tonight or listening in later to the podcast. Tonight's panel forms part of the rich array of wonderful discussions that we've been having in the Nagi Jambana and as part of uh, ACCA's Who's Afraid of Public Space program over the summer, um, which actually wraps up in two weeks' time. I can't believe it's already March. Um, we've been very privileged to have lots of rich discussions about public space, public art, public culture and the contested nature of many of these discussions. Uh, and this evening's event promises to be another uh, rich array of um, discussions in that vein. Um, Who's Afraid of Public Space is a, a multifaceted project. So in addition to the discussions, we have the exhibition here at ACCA, uh, and we also have the distributed project. So we have events, programs, um, and satellite exhibitions across Melbourne. We at ACCA have curated a program of off-site projects, one-off events, long-term um, displays, uh, and if you're so inclined, you can join us for karaoke tomorrow night under the Westgate Bridge. Uh, and we've also worked with a number of really amazing cultural partners um, across Melbourne. Uh, and tonight, after the talk, um, please join us in wandering out over um, the forecourt that Acker shares with Chunky Move. Chunky Move have uh, curated a project with Sean Law and Victoria Chu, uh, which will take place from 7.30 until 8pm on the forecourt. Um, a beautiful new project as part of their Activators series. Uh, so, you can also find out about the rest of the uh, Who's Afraid of Public Space program at acca.melbourne. But tonight, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Carol Brown, Dr. Troy Innocent, uh, Associate Professor Linda Knight, uh, and the moderator of tonight's panel discussion, Rachel Impolsky. Rachel will introduce our three speakers further, um, so please let me just briefly introduce Rachel before handing over. Rachel Iampolsky is an emerging researcher and creative producer who has a strong focus on the public realm. Rachel is completing a PhD at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University, exploring the informal uh, citizen-led reclamation and repurposing of public space, and she also teaches in the Sustainable Urban Planning Faculty. Rachel is also an early career advisor uh, for public space at City Space Architecture, as well as a founding member of the Alliance of Practice Research. 
Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, all panelists. Um, um, thank you for that welcome. Um, I'd, uh, just before we begin, I'd like to um, echo those sentiments uh, to take a moment to um, acknowledge that we meet today uh, on the unceded stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, um, particularly in a context where we're talking about practice in the public realm and insurgence even more so in the public realm. I think it's important that we remain criti critically aware of the land on which we are practicing said insurgence methods on. Um, and I'd like to take a mo moment to acknowledge my position as an uninvited guest um, in that uh, and extend my sincere thanks and acknowledgements um, to the traditional owners of the land, past and present. Um, so welcome everyone, my name is Rachel. We'll be um, discussing today, courtesy of our three wonderful panelists, um, a range of creative praxis and insurgence modes in public space spanning from movement and choreography um, to virtual reality and counter mapping. Um, and so soon the thread between all of them will become apparent as we go. Um, each speaker will present on their practice and then we'll open up to Q&A. So if, if any questions pop up, please feel free to um, bring them through at the end. Um, I'll take a quick moment to introduce our speakers. Their list of experiences and accolades is long, so I'll be brief and then hopefully they can speak to it in more detail. Um, but our first speaker um, is Professor Carol Brown, who's a New Zealand-born dancer, choreographer, artist, scholar, and director. And I'm just looking down at my paper because it's a long list and I don't want to miss anything. Um, her research practices focuses on sight, dance, and expanded choreography. Um, Carol completed one of the first uh, PhD, uh, practice-led PhDs in dance and is now the head of dance and professor of choreography at the University of Melbourne across the road. Um, she's formerly the choreographer in residence at the Place Theatre London and her work has shown internationally um, as well as attracted many awards and prizes including the Nesta Dream Time Fellowship and the Jerwood Choreography Prize, um, just to name a few. Um, up next we have um, Dr. Troy Innocent who is an urban play scholar, artist, game maker and Vice-Chancellor Senior Research Fellow at RMIT University focusing on creative um, practice research. Uh, with a focus on projects that connect public art, the digital realm, um, media studies, and landscape architecture, again, through a variety of mediums, which we'll look at some of today. Um, his extensive experience uh, in exhibition-based work, symposia, and site-specific projects. Um, Innocent also um, develops augmented reality games that blend physical objects with digital interfaces, um, and these have been shown internationally, including the Project 64 Ways of Being, which is an urban adventure platform combining audio walks and mixed realities to situate players um, in new experiences of place, and you can use it to explore Melbourne via the app. Um, and last but not least, we have Associate Professor Linda Knight, who's uh, an artist, producer, curator, and academic who specializes in critical and speculative art practice and methods in particular. Uh, Linda devised the method Inefficient Mapping for fieldwork um, for projects in space uh, and has literally written the book on it titled Inefficient Mapping, a Protocol for Attuning to Phenomena. She works as an associate professor at RMIT with a focus on transdisciplinary projects across early childhood, creative practice, and digital media. Uh, she's the d director of the Mapping Future Imaginaries Research Network, which is an international network of academics um, and designers and creatives, uh, as well as a co-founding member of the Guerrilla Knowledge Unit, um, which is an artist collective looking at the connection between public and AI technologies. Um, so that's our speakers for today, but I will let them speak in more detail. Um, so to kick things off, I will hand over to Thank you. Thank you, Rachel, and hello, everyone. Um, I just want to start by acknowledging the space we're in. 
um, this configuration of the four of us here, you seated over there. Um, this space is a space of encounter, a space of depth, a space of complexity. Someone has pre-choreographed us with these stools. Thank you, Auntie Carolyn, for that which has already choreographed our relationship to the space and the space of encounter which we meet now. Uh, the question of space, how we encounter each other, how we shape, frame, transpose that space is a question that I see as a choreographic one um, and then one that has held my imagination for more than 25 years in making work in public spaces, civic spaces, but also in digital environments and screen environments and also in theatre, traditional theatre environments, which is the traditional home of dance as a discipline. Uh, so for me, an insurgent mode is a dance which takes risks. Now, dancing is not legal everywhere. It's illegal in Iran. It's illegal in Afghanistan. It's illegal in Kuwait. Dancing on religious holidays is illegal in Germany. Spontaneous dancing is illegal in Sweden. Dancing at particular times, including illegal raves, has been illegal in the UK since the 1990s. So dancing in public space, regardless whether it's illegal or legal, is a risky business. What is it about the act of embodied insurgents that creates this level of risk, this volatile body in a public space. We don't know how it's going to behave. We could just move on. I use these terms, urban choreographies, sight dance, performing place, sight dance, dancing places. There are different terms through which we talk about what I also call dance hyphen architecture, the construction of, the programmatic construction of a space-time event in a space. We just move through. Um, and this work has, has um, been my obsession since I first became fatigued by performing in the given space of a theatrical proscenium and started to open dance to the space of the rooftop. This is a piece in 2005, if you can imagine what was going on in Europe in 2005. We've just had the terrorist attacks in London and I'm working in Athens creating a rooftop performance where dancers are seen signaling to each other recreating a homage to Isadora Duncan through this notion of the freedom of the emancipated female body dancing in a public space. We just move through. Tongues of stone taking Ovid's story of metamorphosis into the city of Perth to explore the concept of um, the hidden stories of the, of the Noongar people of that area and how those, the tongue of the city speaks through the corporeal body. Dancers carrying buckets of water, running as chorus, a choric encounter with the city to draw attention to the lost waterways of Perth's um, streams and rivers that run underneath the urban fabric. So again, that's sort of drawing attention to a kind of pre-colonial city, but also the story of water that runs underneath that urban fabric. And then drawing attention to objects and how objects picking out color through my work with Dorita Hanna, who's a well-known performance architect, to sort of pull the audience's attention to the lost, the forgotten, the minor gesture in the city, leaving these traces to sort of ghost the city with these presences, working with dust, working with chalk, 
working with colour. Thousand Lovers, again for Auckland Arts Festival in 2015. Um, Tamaki Makauro, the indigenous name for Auckland as a city, means the city of 1,000 lovers, drawing attention to lost narratives of meetings and the notion of a city founded not on war, but the city founded on a love story. Um, and the idea that the colonial woman was only ever photographed in a wedding dress. So sort of drawing attention to these colonial narratives and how they are also interfaced with pre-colonial narratives and working with teams of um, hip-hop dancers from the Pacific urban movement to re-inhabit the city using the image of the elva, the, the young eel, to draw attention to the waterfront and the sort of um, the draining of the harbour to sort of create this urban, urban landscape. Um, and just some more images too, and I think what we are doing in urban choreographies all the time is, is creating pathways for people to attend to, the, to the, um, the fragmentary and the ephemeral in the space, but as a kind of encounter with history, with memory, with the poetics of that place. And signaling in, in public space, using headphonics to actually create um, an urban choreographic map that uh, may layer the pre-colonial, the post-colonial, the different narratives and the different kinds of stakeholders who have different stories to tell about those cities, particularly at the waterfront, whereas we know in these in white settler colonial spaces, the waterfront was the place, the first place of encounter where blood was first spilt as well between European invaders and indigenous people. So signaling how do we kind of reclaim those spaces as places where those encounters can be made meaningful because different stories um, are recovered and repaired. And then again, working with designers to sort of really create a, a theatrical scale in the urban infrastructure to rescale and sort of pull out kind of a moment of um, poetics where we might kind of create a more operatic environment in public space to draw attention. In this case, Sophie Williams standing on a balcony, but with a 30 meter long red silk dress that plays with the wind becomes a dance performer is in this environment as well. So out of these works, including Urban Divas, another waterfront piece from the Auckland waterfront for um, Living City with Phil Dadson, using the idea of a trumpet to tell messages, to sort of be this angel, this liminal space between the, the city and the body and the notion of the voice that can be recomposed in that space. Um, and these trumpets were used to sing, they chanted, but they also could tell stories and uh, whisper small things as well. So the gesture could be quite theatrical and quite bold, could also be quite minor and quite, quite um, intimate with the body. You could also put the trumpet on your body and it could be a resonating tool as well. But also the high-vis vests, drawing attention to the sense of crisis, signaling the city in crisis, the city in emergency, these dancers spent the day um, basically running from, from one point of the city to another. This is Wellington, um, living room, and listening to the city, putting the ear to the ground, literally and metaphorically, and then creating these um, sculptural tableau vivant to again sort of align themselves with the design of, of Wellington. 
and have these chance encounters so that people would be surprised. It was, not a, it was not a choreography that people knew was coming. It was like this notion of the serendipitous, the chance encounter, um, these moments that could be captured. And then again, the similar, this project in Flood from 2015, where that long red dress that you saw in Wellington was transposed to the um, Charles Bridge, the famous Charles Bridge at dawn in Prague for an audience, a perambulatory audience that followed the narrative of um, a, a flood that took hold of the, the uh, Vltava River in the 1600s and sort of recounting that story as a catastrophe signaling the red, the dancer with the red dress, signaling the crisis of environmental change. So out of these, and I'm going to flick two, because um, I know we've got very little time. From, from my work as a, as a choreographer working with sight dance to arrive in Melbourne two years ago in, um, in January, just before the first lockdown, I just wanted to sort of say briefly how my practice transposed to a radically different context where, um, if you go to the next slide, um, where I was as the new head of dance at VCA, working with young people, 18 and 19 year olds, who did not have access to this level of urban play, to this level of urban choreography, who were effectively um, restrained from moving in public space and dancing, engaging with site-specific dance in the way that we would normally teach it and practice it and engage with it. And who, um, if we just keep going through, I just wanted to show, yeah, what's the score? So the score that we encountered for the last two years was this score. So they moved into the Zoom grid from that more notion of expansive site-specific dance. How do we adapt site-specific thinking to the restrictions of a COVID pandemic where the space that the dancers had to work in was um, the grid of Zoom lesson or their, their apartments. This was the kind of amount, this is actually quite a generous space. Some dancers were dancing on their beds, some were in their kitchens, but they've had you know, more than 267 days of dancing in a very constrained way. And I just wanted to um, credit to them the creativity of the students. How does the city in this condition become another kind of score? So from that more imaginary score, the mythical score, the story-taking score, how do we take the score of COVID restrictions that keep 1.5 meter apart and move for others? How do I, as a dancer, read those signs in public space as a new kind of score for choreography? Um, the field of play that we operate in, I'm just gonna give you two examples. The first one is, um, so this is Royal Park, my local neighborhood. We did a lot of work um, in the park spaces. So working in Royal Park, but also seeing how, again, a bit like this encounter, we were given the score with these circles. You could be inside the circle or outside the circle. And um, this is one of my PhD students, Shinjita Roy, who created a distance dance for two people to meet at a prescribed time, to maintain a 1.5 meter distance together, and to activate this choreographic score at Royal Park. Um, they had to be living within five kilometers distance of each other, and they would do the score for an, an audience who may or may not be there. And um, this is, the next one is, if you go, yeah, this is David Sequera, the curator of um, 
what was the Margaret Lawrence Gallery. He's been retitled as the Sydney Meyer Gallery and his partner Ben meeting doing Shinjita's score. Um, so photographing these moments where these scores would happen. The second one, this is a piece called Rise. This is our um, second year students working with Daniel Riley, the new artistic director of Australian Dance Theatre at dawn, creating a performance that we um, worked on on Zoom. And on the 24th of November, 2020, if you remember, that was the day that the restrictions lifted. The dancers met at dawn in Royal Park and performed this to the sunrise. And Auntie Di, Wurundjeri Auntie Di came to this as well. So there we are dancing at dawn um, with the average. And that was the upsurge. This is my insurgent mode moment. <laughs> it's like getting these wonderful um, dancers invested with so much hope and, and promise in their agency to, um, to dance with the dawn on that day was, was huge. And then we had another year of lockdown. And then I just wanted to show one, have I got time to show one tiny clip? I'll show one tiny clip. The final one is um, a video project which shows dancers working in their own home locations set to the William Tell um, Overture.
So to insurge, to rise, to spring up, how do we get up again? And I just want to finish with this quote from Charlotte Bronte. The apparition had been transient, scarce, seen ere gone, but its electric passage left her veins kindled, her soul insurgent. And I'll finish there. Great, thank you so much. And I could see how that last piece would um, inspire hope. Um, I'm still smiling. Um, wonderful, thank you. I might pass the mic virtually otherwise to Troy. Thanks, Rachel. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the space that we're in um, and uh, the fact that sovereignty was never ceded. We're here on the lands of the Woiwurrung and uh, Boonwurrung uh, people. I'm going to talk about my practice, which is really connected to that uh, sense of, of place. And um, so I started as a, as a digital artist working largely with uh, virtual worlds and codes of play and artificial life and, and, and so forth. And, and at, at a certain point, I uh, kind of moved back out into the world and I found that all of these traces of that uh, digital language uh, had kind of infiltrated um, reality, which is, of course, hugely mutable um, because it's the reality that we live in is largely cultural. Um, you know, the materiality, this, these, this material that we're sitting on here, we're often kind of abstracted from that. And, um, and I think that, you know, the types of insurgent practice that I'd like to talk about is really to do with that kind of reconnecting with, with the world on a number of different layers. So um, I'm still interested in code and language, but I'm now interested in decoding the city as a kind of assemblage of multiple layers, uh, systems, ways of being, uh, you know, kind of maps, rules, um, but reframing that world. And uh, I guess you could call it a kind of hacking the social imaginary, because every city um, and, you know, I'll, I'll kind of talk about how the pandemic has really created, I guess, to make a really, uh, uh, a kind of, I guess, uh, uh, a kind of pop culture reference. Um, it's really kind of been this matrix moment where the, the, the kind of code of the city has been revealed as, as entirely constructed. You know, so these cities that we're so familiar with and we think that's just the way the world is, you know, actually that was a complete illusion. Um, so this is also why I'm interested in augmented reality, because it is this um, way to play with that in a really uh, tangible way. Um, you know, sometimes it can be overt, sometimes it can be really uh, a kind of um, a subtle. And, um, uh, and, and, and what I'm interested in, is, as, as Rachel said in the introduction, is this kind of layering of digital media with uh, uh, physical and material objects. Uh, sometimes I make objects and I place them in, in public spaces and connect digital media, animation, sound, and so forth to those. Uh, in other cases, uh, working with the, the space, kind of uh, appropriating uh, a kind of uh, place to create ready-made uh, game worlds. So, you know, kind of this kind of uh, language of, of, of play that we have in our minds, kind of activating space using that, kind of, that language that's already in, 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 in our mind. And so central to this methodology is imaginative play. So I'm talking largely about play that happens 
in a in a kind of um, it, it is embodied, um, but you don't. It's really kind of personal and uh, intimate. So the intimate encounters, which is something we're not always used to doing, having in public space. We're really actually usually quite closed to 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 those spaces. Um, and I see that imaginative play as a way of, of seeing potential and possibility and um, speculating on other worlds, which has become increasingly important. And uh, to, to do this, it's really critical to situate the player directly um, in the world and to open that uh, world up to them um, so that both the player opens up uh, and the world opens up to them. So there's this exchange that happens. And the strategy I'd use to do this is to, to blend and mix uh, digital media with um, you know, material uh, reality. So these things have been important to what I call my post-digital practice over the past 16 years, but they've come into sharper focus because of the pandemic. Uh, cities have become fluid and mutable, largely through necessity. You know, um, we've seen urban planners make uh, allow things to happen in cities that previously they said were not possible. Um, but also to, to um, think that I'm really interested in and something that's been part of my practice for a long time, especially going back to things like culture jamming and so forth, is this strategy of defamiliarization. And that's kind of become part of our everyday lived experience because, you know, COVID reset all the rules and suddenly, as I said before, this the kind of code of the city has been uh, uh, revealed and we see that all of these other possibilities coming out of that. So central to this practice is really transforming the mobile phone from something that is uh, kind of like a, a, a tool of isolation and um, uh, disconnection and um, compulsion to to more more of a place for reimagination and reinvention and reconnection. So to ask people to to, to um, uh, kind of look through the phone screen and into the world around them. And so again, augmented reality it doesn't do this by default, uh, but it has the potential to do that in, if you approach it with a critical mind. And, and um, the way that I do that uh, is to, to really uh, kind of work with this idea of urban play. So this is, a rel like this is a, something that's been going on for, for a long time, um, but it's, again, one of these ideas that's come into sharper focus. So urban play can be anything from really intense physical forms of play, like parkour and skateboarding or, or dance. Um, uh, uh, through to forms of tactical urbanism and street art, uh, but also intimate social, kind of social encounters and community activism, uh, protest and performance, walking and exploration, uh, and also as well as structured play in forms of games and events and uh, these imaginative ways of being in the world. So through these kind of mixed realities, I'm really kind of interested in uh, hybrid forms of... of um, of, of augmented reality uh, that uh, allow this kind of speculative design to happen in real time 
indirectly in relation to the world. And I call this uh, practice reworlding. So li literally taking the world and kind of remaking it through an encounter, through play. And really the, the kind of central thinking around this from a kind of, I guess, an artistic methodology point of view is this idea of working with the city as a material. So returning to this idea of um, assemblage, you know, working, you know, seeing the city as an assemblage of multiple, you know, so many, you know, both um, virtual and digital, actual and material uh, layers, uh, I, I kind of, my work blends together multiple worlds and, and ways of being that, that, that coexist in public space. Uh, so, except they're not always visible. So some of these layers include, you know, the more than human, uh, urban code, indigenous histories, emotional cartography, speculative fiction. These are all layers in the assemblage that, you know, are centered around the subjective experience of the player, what's happening to them as they encounter the world. And so, so in, in this work that I'm going to be now start talking about, it, it's both a game, uh, a show, in terms of a theatre uh, show, uh, and a, uh, you know, public artwork. And um, this work, so I'm going to kind of give some examples of this reworlding in practice through a, a project called 64 Ways of Being. And it situates players in urban adventures. Uh, to, and I'll, I'll kind of talk through these exa examples to speak to these methods in practice. So in 64 Ways of Being, there's a, a, a range of, of places that, are, that ways of being exist in or live in. And so you just saw an image then of three players starting a, a journey through the Melbourne CBD on the steps of parliament. And um, I mean, I'm not going to go off on a tangent here, but even when we started this project a few years ago, uh, parliament had a different meaning than it, that it has now. So these places are always in flux and they're always changing. Uh, um, uh, but we chose that site because of both its view into the Melbourne CBD uh, and also uh, it, the kind of colonial architecture that's visible from there. And so you kind of move down the steps and there's this threshold moment where you go from listening to the introductory uh, track uh, created by One Step at a Time Like This, the theatre artists that have collaborated with on this project, and into, uh, you, you transform from a pedestrian to a player. So you, you kind of go through this threshold and then you're in the world, you're in the experience. And um, of course, you know, speaking to the mobile, we ask everyone to do all the things that you would, you would do at the start of a theatre show, put do not disturb on, make sure that you're not interrupted, wear headphones, be immersed, uh, because then you're in your own world, but you're simultaneously in this other world, you know, the Melbourne CBD. And so one of the encounters that you have, I'm not going to go through all 64 ways of being, we're still making a lot of them, there's nine of them in, in Melbourne, is um, all of them are connected to a, to a word. And this first one is cha, um, which is a, a Cantonese word which speaks to the, the kind of energy of a place. And that place is this uh, uh, public square in, uh, in Chinatown near the museum where there's a gateway. It's called the Facing Heaven Gateway. And um, you can't see the gateway in this image, it's to the left, but this experience that these players are having there 
uh, starts with a decoding of the architecture of that gateway. So they kind of uh, explain you know, what it means, where it's situated, what the language means. And then they're brought into this energy of, of the public square and brought into a way of being. And each of these ways of being connects play, place, language, and feelings. So there's this kind of uh, methodology for for working with augmented reality that's site-specific, that relates to a particular location. And in this encounter, they uh, uh, kind of, uh, they follow digital um, kind of flying beings that move about the space, that kind of, that visualize the idea of, you know, energy uh, in, in that public kind of square. And this choreographs their movement through public space. So they're not standing still, kind of, kind of scanning something on a wall. They have to move and, and encounter one another and encounter the digital beings. And they're, so they're kind of both in this um, phone uh, kind of screen world of the digital experience. In the immersive audio, there's a spatial audio soundtrack where you hear stories about um, the particular dragons that are on the facing heaven gateway, the uh, kind of sea fish owl dragon. Um, which incidentally um, uh, is about uh, protecting people from, from um, so it's always kind of uh, uh, consuming water, uh, so it, which connects to a larger theme in this work that I'll come back to about waterways and flow. Um, but the, the, the motion choreographs the, the movement of, of, of the players in that space and creates this um, collective experience. Further down, uh, uh, so you're kind of moving through the city, you're flowing through the city, always traveling downstream, and uh, you land at this particular location, and this is connected to a Woiwurrung word, which is Zambiak, um, which means land. But it means more than that. It means kind of being on country, so it has this multiplicity of meaning depending on its context and what other words it's connected to. And so this really um, kind of speaks to a different um, way of being, a different way of even thinking about what land or ground, you know, kind of the world is. And in this situation, which, is, which happens just outside the um, uh, Flinders Street station at the end of Elizabeth Street, uh, we worked with uh, Nawi Carolyn Briggs to uh, share her eel stories, so the story about uh, the eels that travel uh, underneath Elizabeth Street through the, the, the waterway. So Elizabeth Street was once a creek, it used to be a, a kind of flow into the Birrarung. Uh, and, and of course, all of these waterways, even though you know, the city's built over the top of them, they're, they're still there, they're still present, they still flow. Um, they're just not visible to us. So that story is shared here, this location, um, but it's, it's mixed in with the... Um, uh, kind of flow of pedestrians, and it connects again to that, that theme of, of this journey, which is about water and flow, and asking people also to flow. And after this moment, you travel through the underpass and then walk along the Burrarung, and you're asked to, to, to be an eel in a way, so to kind of flow through the, the crowd like an eel. And so, working with um, uh, Nawi Carolyn Briggs, you know, the, the idea of this project was uh, uh, you know, largely about connecting knowledge to place. And of course, um, people like Auntie Carolyn are the uh, experts in this. You know, the, there's uh, tens of thousands of years of, of, of culture uh, that is literally about you know, connecting knowledge to place. So, you know, 
come, you know, come along with you know, fancy technology and phones and so forth, and of course this is something that's been going on for, for uh, forever. However, um, uh, Nawi is really interested in working with this um, technology because of the way that she sees herself in that she sees herself as both a custodian and a citizen, so both a, a traditional custodian but also a citizen of Melbourne. So for her, it's really, really important to uh, uh, situate Indigenous knowledge in a contemporary context rather than um, say that, oh, this is something that happened in the past, it's something that's still happening here now, um, it's underneath your feet. And so um, the title of this journey through the Melbourne CBD is called Holding Multiple Worlds, because that's really what this is about. It's about holding multiple worlds in mind at once, and this is what we ask of the players as they kind of move through the city, is to have that in mind. And so in this case, um, as I said before, the player views uh, uh, a dancing kind of eels um, that move through the pedestrians. So if you're familiar with that crossing, this is where pedestrians cross diagonally. It's one of the only places where that happens in Melbourne. And so as the, as the player's watching them, they, they, the un, uh, kind of unwitting pedestrians become part of the performance. They become part of that um, piece. I'm gonna finish just by speaking briefly about project, uh, ne the next chapter in this, which is happening um, in a couple of weeks in Footscray. Uh, and um, about these geograms. These are part of the work, and essentially they're geolocated ideograms. So they're the idea of um, uh, kind of making signs for place. So we'll quickly move through the next couple of slides, maybe two seconds each, that goes through For Forges Lane. You go through it, look through in a modern ruin that's around there, uh, uh, kind of working with a large architectural site. Um, exploring Nicholson Street Mall and kind of um, the uh, uh, installation there. Uh, there's a story about Flowerlands and how Footscray got its name. Uh, there's an encounter which describes the Blue Lake that used to be across the Maribyrnong River where the, where the containers now are. And um, there's, it, it finishes with a, a, a walk with, um, again, with Nawi Carolyn Briggs uh, talking about the various plants and other uh, uh, kind of, um, kind of, I guess, um, the other, everything that you see along the Maribyrnong as well as um, what you can't see. And um, yeah, so geograms uh, have appeared uh, are appearing in, in Footscray. There's a gradual uh, emergence of this new work uh, in, um, across, over the next two weeks. So I'll end with a bit of a plug and yeah, if you go and explore Footscray, thanks. Great, thank you so much, Troy. Um, I'll now pass over to Linda to take us through her gestural mapping practice. Sorry, forgot. Um, so my name is Linda, and um, I'm a, a, an academic at RMIT, but I've got a history um, in social engaged practice, uh, both here and in the UK. Um, and uh, that has been working with largely underserved communities in the urban context, and uh, not always with children. Uh, lots of different groups um, of people who are living in and around urban areas. Um, and 
needing to collaborate and come together in through arts as a social practice. Um, and so I'm kind of influenced by that history in my um, art practice, but also in my arts research as a scholar. Um, and so I'm going to talk about the relationships between all of those things um, today. So the things that I'm interested in are um, public and urban space and how we move within public and urban space. And I'm particularly interested in how children uh, navigate that. Um, I'm interested in the ways that children develop their sense of belonging and community uh, and this tricky concept of citizenship, which can be uh, kind of politicized and um, become kind of uh, activated for nefarious means by various uh, organizations and bodies. But I'm interested in how young children develop their uh, sense of being uh, a citizen. And as a scholar, I'm also interested in the more than human. So the ways in which um, other beings and community members um, can be thought of as citizens as well. And so some of my work kind of explores that through um, different kinds of projects, whether that's through my own artistic projects or whether it's with socially engaged practice projects. Um, and as Rachel mentioned, um, uh, I have a, a, a practice called inefficient mapping, which I use methodologically to conduct research projects, and I also use it as a drawing practice. And my main, my main practice as an artist is drawing. And um, here's uh, an example of one of those um, inefficient mapping um, pieces. And so it's a drawing practice and methodology and explores the complexity of the milieu. And so I work with a lot of uh, post-human and post-structural theories. Um, I was very frustrated as a scholar um, with doing all this very theoretical work and this, these ways of thinking about the world in very complex terms. But the choices of methods and methodologies was really poor and didn't seem to fit. Uh, they seem to belong to a different paradigm of distillation and um, kind of a positivist notion of truth and, and so on. And so uh, through that frustration, I devised inefficient mapping, which is uh, for me a way to keep that theory of complexity through the whole project. Um, and it, for me, it visualizes that complexity when I'm kind of investigating um, the urban space. And what, uh, methodologically, what it records is partiality, movements, and edges. And so what you see here are these kind of tracings and inscriptions that, re that relate to those happenings within the complex milieu. <coughs> Excuse me. And so it's also an artist practice for me. So this is, um, the previous one was a, a, an image that, uh, from a research investigation. This is a piece of art that I've produced uh, for exhibition and they both use inefficient mapping. And so um, this one relates to the themes of our presentation, which is insurgent methods. Um, and this is a mapping that I did from my kitchen window um, over a period of weeks. Um, the only thing I could see moving were some trees by the uh, railway line, which I live right next to. 
and I got to know the trees. <clears throat> and I was pretty devastated one morning when I woke up and the trees were gone. And that's because I live on the Mernda line and the Mernda line is being lifted um, up towards Preston and Bell and the I don't live near those stations, but um, in preparation for all those track works, they had cleared every bit of um, kind of vegetation um, in preparation. And it was just, it was just devastating. So for me, this was a kind of um, a record of them and um, as these citizens that were simply removed from the, from the scene. Um, and so the, the process of drawing um, is a way to kind of pay honor to their movement and their kind of uh, agency and their vivacity as, um, as, as beings. Um, I'm also very interested in the notion of um, this is a counter mapping practice. So um, uh, the uh, inefficient mapping is a counter mapping practice and it's concerned with ethics. And so this is from a series called Mapping Extinctions. And it was begun as the 2019-2020 uh, bushfires really started to do a lot of damage. And we had those horrendous, like inconceivable numbers of uh, biodiversity loss. And, um, and so this is a project which looks at um, the, that list, and they're on the red list. I don't know if you know of the red list, but it's a global list of either critically endangered or uh, uh, extinct species. And we've had, unfortunately, some Australian um, contributions to the red list in the last couple of years. Um, and so what this is, is a, uh, there's obviously, you can see the Rufus scrub bird here. Um, and it is in blue, and it's a pun on the notion of the blueprint but it also references the, uh, the ways in which those kind of uh, early colonists came and kind of um, uh, extracted uh, aspects of what they were seeing onto the blank page as specimens. And so it pays, pays kind of reference to that. What you're seeing over the top there is um, mappings of the Rufus scrub bird in movement, which I found on um, YouTube videos. And that's purposeful because um, the work is about the speculative futures of these uh, endangered species and that perhaps one day the only way we will see them is uh, by looking on YouTube. Um, and so the mapping is a, is a movement of a bird, but a bird caught in perpetuity on a social media platform. So, um, next. So the mapping is something I also bring in to my social, um, social practice projects. And this is a project that I did with Carol um, here, um, as well as a number of um, other colleagues, um, both here and in uh, New Zealand. And it taps into that notion of how children build connection with uh, their urban environment. And, um, we were exploring through this project how that is a, quite a physical, it's a physical kind of enactment for the children. And so how might we help children kind of think about this critically through creative movement, through dance, but also through gestural mark making and mapping. 
Um, and so the, the children's wayfaring through an urban space was marked um, through these kind of responsive movements, uh, both, both in response to a space, but also uh, as a gesture toward the space. Um, and so the, the children, we had two sites. The previous one was in Auckland, and this one was in, um, in Brisbane. Um, and we worked with groups of children in both those sites to get them to think about um, their responses uh, to space. What's, what was really interesting about the project is how the children decided on the movements that they made, how they made those responses, how they started to build a relationship with space. And for, for me, the um, gestural mapping was a way for them to, um, to leave a trace, literally, but also um, kind of conceptually leave a trace of presence. And the chalks were not permanent, so they kind of blew away. They became a kind of just, they were transient mark, and they were just temporary. But it was a way for children to declare that they were there, and they, this is their occupation and their kind of interaction. Um, and so through this, um, it's not about just the child, though. It's about the whole milieu, if, uh, to go back to that earlier point, and how all all agencies, all materialities, all beings are part of that milieu. It's not just a child with a flat urban background. There's a, there's a kind of interaction and a kind of collaborative uh, process going on between different uh, aspects of the environment. And to me, that brings about this notion of the post-human urban civics, which is, um, you know, the kind of collection of things building together, a building a civic space together in, um, in different ways. Um, and so in this, you can see here, there are different, these are just examples from other projects as well as another one from the, um, Urban Activators Project, where the chalk, and in this case, brushed water, um, becomes like an active agent. And that's uh, really interesting. For me, that's the kind of modality of insurgency, where the chalk becomes this active agent. It's, it's not really permitted, but it's temporary, so it's kind of tolerated. And it's kind of exciting to do the marking. Um, the actual materiality of the chalking becomes actively um, a participant in the choreography and the movement as well. And so um, it's, it starts to have its own agency in that interaction and collection of ideas and bodies. And so for me, this children's wayfaring is uh, through this urban space is a process of building, belonging, it's a, it's a way of building community identity in incredibly creative um, kind of enacted ways. Um, and um, and it, it builds their sense of understanding of themselves as a body within other uh, dimensional spaces in quite creative ways. So this is just a short um, video. So 
this is a nice example of what I was just talking about in that the, the, there was this little slice of a space which was so attractive to the children. It was down the side of a walkway and it was this tiny, tiny corridor of a space that they were immediately drawn to and the challenge that it offered them choreographically, but also having this chalk, they were trying to both move and mark at the same time. Um, and in that process, they were working you, can, you could see through those movements, they were thinking really creatively and quite in, uh, in a, insurgent ways about making an occupation, a temporary occupation in this space. Um, and for me, the idea, this is this nice idea of inefficiently mapping a space, but also kind of in different scales, you know, through small and large movements, through these gestural kind of scrapings and markings but also working together as a, in this beautiful, like kind of collective choreography um, in, in and with the materialities of the space. And the space was determining that. So that was, that was really quite lovely. And this also is a short video. And so this one, again, is just a lovely example of how the, um, the ways in which movement and chalk and space, this, the nature of the surface, the kind of ways in which they were aware of each other's bodies um, as a collective, but also wanting to do something that was kind of uh, uh, a very creative and generative response to space totally different to just walking through it or even going through it on a bicycle or with uh, your sibling in a stroller or any of those kinds of things. So just the kind of disruption of that usual movement um, and how that can be kind of recorded but also kind of um, scripted and, uh, and created um, and curated. So go to the next one. And again, this is a video. And what I love about this one is the interaction. Obviously, it has this intergenerational, beautiful inter intergenerational interaction. Um, and it, it brings, I think, this kind of totally di a total different relationship. And it generates, I think, for both the adult and the child, a sense of being and belonging and, um, you know, kind of uh, having an identity in a space um, and exploring the materiality of the space. So. Um, for me, this kind of ins it is this is definitely not what you would normally do in a walkway, which was the space. Um, and obviously, there are different materials being used to mark it that have different levels of um, temporality and and uh, permanency. Um, but they're both kind of insurgent uh, ways of working. But what a way to build kind of a, a relational um, sense of uh, connection and through that um, a sense of citizenship, like this is my space, I belong here and this is, I'm, you know, I'm responding to it, I'm able to do this 
and it's this beautiful interaction between the two dancers there. Next one. And so this one is just a, um, another example of when you, when you let children go into a space, they will do great things. <laughs> um, and so this is the occupation of a university space. And um, it, it was just kind of, I, I can't really describe it any other way than it was kind of humming with, um, with activity and, um, and children discovering and being in a space and working through um, creative uh, and artistic kind of processes and ideas uh, in an intergenerational way with, with adults there as well. And I think for me, this is the um, real crux of uh, kind of insurgent modes of going back into public space and how important the, the uh, creative practice is um, in, in kind of working those, uh, those first forays back into space um, and how important that is for young people. And I'm mentioning here particularly about children. Um, and so I see that the arts is really quite central in this, in this, um, in this mode. And I'd just like to finish with uh, a plug, really. So uh, I talk very much about this in the two books um, that I've published in the last uh, six months. And um, the one on the left, the inefficient mapping, is very much about the drawing process. And the one on the right is about how young children in the Anthropocene are kind of building a sense of uh, connection with place, um, but also with other more than human citizens in the urban space. And it's important to remember those as well. Great, thank you, Linda. Um, and I'd encourage everyone to try this inefficient mapping uh, process in your own time. It's a really, um, I guess, meditative way to experience your landscape. It's a really fun way, anyway. Um, thank you so much to all our panelists. Um, I'm weary of time, so I might throw one question and then open it to the audience. Um, and so my question is about uh, more than human uh, ways of dealing um, with public space currently, um, as it's sort of a common thread amongst your practices. So, you know, in the past couple of years, we've been thinking about our bodies in relation to this invisible biological entity that is a virus, while simultaneously, you know, lockdown's really accelerated this timeline of the digital sphere mediating our lives and, by extension, public space. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, what impact, if any, has this had on your practice? And where do you see the role of insurgent practice in this kind of increasingly mediated uh, climate that, that we're in, or moving towards, anyway? Looking at me, Rachel, shall I start? Um, yeah, I think the urban connection part of the title of this talk is, is really interesting, because, you know, I started saying that, you know, we are meeting in this joint space at the moment, space of encounter. But the final video I showed with the four um, different screens, the multi-screen image of dancers all living in different parts of Australia, so working at a distance. So the notion of the distance dance, touchless collaboration, I feel there's been a, 
acceleration, and I see Helen Skye is here. There was those of us who are part of the early generation of digital dance know that we've been here before, <laughs> creating these worlds. But it feels with at the moment there's an urgency to, and I think with respect to Troy's work as well, as to to create these more hybrid hybridized spaces where we can are doing both and, and that I think that that is um, something certainly with a lot of young people, and also with Linda's work too, that they understand the trace of their movement or the digital trace, there's also a digital trace, and what the, the, what the digital trail is doing and what that can be doing operatively as well in terms of radical practice and offers to the field and offers to each other for modes of commons, how we can be in a, in, in a common space together and find those 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 ranges, but also just to say access, you know, I think also I'm conscious we're not making that this will be a podcast after the event. So the time of the event, the temporality of the event is extended. It's not just the live, but there will be the extended audience, the people who listen to us speaking after the event. Yeah, I think it's a, a complicated provocation, so I'm going to give a complicated answer, but it's going to go into a dark place, but then I'm going to talk about um, some of my own personal experience. So I'll start with a joke that I made to a friend recently um, about uh, you know this moment in the last couple of years. You know, um, Buddhists everywhere are celebrating because you know everyone now recognizes that change is constant. You know, the world is not fixed, and, and you know, adaptation and change is really just how our way of being now. Um, uh, and you know. This decade, in particular, if we you know, make it through it, it's it's just gonna you know it's only just started. You know, there's there's gonna be more ahead in terms of uh, uh, change, and and really that that is recognizing that we're not on top of the world. We can't control everything. There's you know many many other life forms and systems and processes and so forth that we're dependent upon, literally embodied and in, engaged with. Uh, and um, and so in terms of you know this idea of, of how maybe a, a post-human position might relate to this moment in time and I guess to the to the, the varied practices that we've been talking about today in terms of mapping and uh, dancing and, and activating um, public space um, this multiplicity is really important and the um, so before the uh, bushfires and before the pandemic uh, I started to engage with a, 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 a kind of concept which was short-lived but really um, kind of changed how people saw speculative fiction and it was this idea of hope punk and uh, this is kind of a, a counterpoint to you know grim dark which is the you know dominant dystopian uh, trend in fiction but it's also a counterpoint to noble bright which is this idea that a hero will save the day and it's about a kind of collective community um, action. And it's not about a single kind of, you know, chosen one who's, who, who saves the world. And this is in kind of the realm of speculative fiction and games and so forth. But, um, you know, cumulative, collective, connected action. And I'm really glad that I came across that position before all of this happened because it really helped for me to, to change and adapt. And um, incidentally, at our local park, there were so many children drawing with chalk over this um, huge long bike path. It was a kind of a, every day, a new 20 meter artwork that really um, was great um, in daily walks and so forth, and that trace of, of people and, and, and place, uh, on place. And I remember the first time I 
kind of I wrote on the world and it was really kind of a connecting moment. Um, but I guess I, I just wanted to, to take you through that, that kind of myriad of, of potential connections um, to, to arrive at this, this um, idea that I really uh, connect with in terms of um, post-humanism, which is affirmative ethics, this idea that you know, there is still hope in the face of um, you know, all of this uh, kind of, um, you know, I guess, uh, uh, existential threat of you know, climate crisis and all, of, all that kind of stuff. We all know that. Um, and as, a, as an artist, you kind of feel a bit um, helpless, but, uh, or kind of like you're not re you can't really have an impact. And of course, you know, it would be huge kind of, uh, I guess, um, uh, I mean, and it's true, you know, but collectively, you know, changing the way that we see the world and the way that we be in the world uh, changes the world because uh, the, way, the way that we see the world is what we man kind of kind of create. Um, so going back to this idea of um, that I started with, which is you know, how we've now hopefully collectively realised that cities are a result of our own um, uh, kind of uh, projections of social imaginaries, and that perhaps uh, there is an opportunity to to um, include more than human uh, kind of kind of uh, uh, beings and systems and processes within that, which will then in turn, in the long run, create different perhaps better cities. Um, for me, I, I... Well, okay, so there was the restrictions. So that, the restrictions is, uh, you can think of that negatively and positively, because obviously, you know, when you've got a restriction, it can prompt a more creative kind of problem solving. Um, and so I guess like a lot of people, I went through all of those cycles of, uh, yeah, it'll be fine and I'll just do this and I'll, I know I can, I can generate this tiny little project and, you know, even though I've only got five kilometres and, you know, ten minutes to go out, I'll use that as a kind of pro provocation and, and then, of course, you know, it goes on and on and it starts to lose its, you know, sheen um, and you're just kind of waiting for the lockdown to finish. Um, and uh, so I suppose, like lots of people, I went through cycles of it'll be okay, oh, no, it's not, oh, maybe it'll be okay, oh, no, it's not. Um, and so I think um, the, uh, that, flags, that flags that kind of notion of freedom, of access. Um, I did do a project on uh, called The Edges of Privilege, which was a, a mapping project because um, I... I am in permanent work, um, I'm white, I'm English speaking, I have lots of privilege. And so I live in a nice part of town, in, in a house, um, you know, my, my job wasn't under threat because of the lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it kind of flagged a load of things for me that, um, that I hadn't really, really had uh, so, obviously in my um, awareness, um, just in everyday life. And so I think the practice for me became perhaps more kind of critical and ethical because of the glaring inequalities that the, you know, the pandemic has, has really flagged. Um, and, and also though, like Troy, I saw this incredible kind of um, creativity and problem solving in, on the part of uh, families trying to entertain 
their children, particularly in those very tight restrictions and how they, uh, I, I saw a lot of people walking the dog, <laughs> a lot of people walking the dog, all the time walking the dog with, the, with children in like on skateboards and, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so generating times for play and generating times to be out in space and that to me became almost like a socially engaged practice because it wasn't the everyday, it was purposefully uh, kind of curated and constructed and, uh, and, and they were really dealing with quite restrictive components. And so for me, I, I think, you know, I, uh, I was really interested in how families were managing that. Um, and to, to me, it was very much a, a social practice. So it's just obser observing these slightly different things taking place, so. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just weary of time, so unless there's a, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm getting the nod. Unless there's a burning audience question, I might have to wrap it up. Yeah, okay, great. Um, so thank you so much again. I'd like to thank all our panelists, um, Linda, Troy, and Carol. Thank you again so much for your time today, and Akka for hosting us. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to join you afterwards uh, for the Chunky Move performance starting in 15 minutes. But thank you again, everyone. Thanks so much. <laughs>